Hey everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of our War Report. This, of course, is focusing on the Russo-Ukrainian War once again. This podcast, along with all other A&E podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions, LLC. You know, of course, we're back. I had a little extended break. I'm all done with my semester, which is great. I'm out for the summer, have a lot more time freed up, so the War Reports will be coming uh, more regularly. And um, as well, I plan on getting back to the news roundup. So if all goes according to schedule, I'll have one of those out next week. Um, So, yeah, a lot more time freed up. These will come out more regularly, which is great. And another quick note before we get started, um, I did take away the portion going over uh, casualty numbers by specific unit. I figured you guys probably don't want to listen to me just go over um you know numbers on and on for minutes so instead i've put that into a uh, into a separate document in case anybody still wants to go over um unit casualties by uh number whatever i'll be releasing that document uh probably tonight or tomorrow um but that won't be a part of the podcast so you guys don't have to listen to that if you don't want to and you probably don't um of course, this podcast is sponsored by Mission Essential Gear, your one-stop combat shop, home of the Fools. Tactical handbook for unit leaders available at ambigearco.com and Amazon as well. Use code ANE2021 for a discount added to your cart on the Mission Essential Gear website. Also, check out the Freelancers, a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers. Instagram at Freelancers Blog and their website at freelancersconflictblog.wordpress.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate or buy us a coffee at co-fi that's ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. And with that being said, we will get into the war report. The Russian invasion is now in its 101st day. Over 6.8 million Ukrainians have fled the country as refugees to neighboring countries, with 3.6 million alone fleeing to Poland. One million have gone to Russia, and almost one million have gone to Hungary. Strategically important cities captured by Russian forces include Kherson and Mariupol. Kherson is the only oblast capital to be captured at this moment. And if you don't already know, an oblast is sort of equivalent to a state here in the U.S. or in many other countries, a province. Ukrainian forces have reestablished effective control over all of Sumy Oblast all the way to the Russian border in the east and all the way from the oblast of Kiev and Chernihiv all the way to the north to the border with Belarus. Much of Kharkiv Oblast has likewise been recaptured, and the Oblast capital is almost out of Russian artillery range, but there is still heavy fighting going on in the area, so it's not all officially cleared yet. Heavy fighting is continuing in the northern portion of Kharkiv, like I just said, and in Luhansk Oblast. Despite Russian forces being pushed out of much of northern and northeastern Ukraine, roughly 20% of the country is currently under Ru- Russian excuse me, occupation. That includes Crimea, which is already occupied 2014, and rebel-held areas prior to the invasion. Again, also occupied in 2014-2015. You're talking about uh, about a third of Luhansk and a third of Donetsk prior to the invasion. 
Michael Kaufman is the director of Russian studies at the Center for Naval Analyses. He grew up in Ukraine during the time of the Soviet Union. And as an expert of the Russian defense apparatus, he is a great resource on this conflict. He assesses that Russia's Western military district is essentially combat ineffective as a fighting force. This is due to the massive amounts of casualties and equipment losses suffered during the first phase of the invasion. Russia has a massive advantage in fire support, according to Michael Kaufman, which we are seeing, of course. Um, that means things like artillery, rockets, and missiles. However, Russia has a severe lack of infantry and really has from the start of the invasion. The Russian military is a tiered military and has been fighting the war at a peacetime strength. What that means is that Russian units are only manned at around 70% of their allotted manpower through their task organization due, or during peacetime. Excuse me. Additionally, the Russian military still contains hundreds of thousands of conscripts, or here in the U.S. we would know them as draftees. Generally speaking, these conscripts cannot be deployed outside of Russia during peacetime. Of course, there are some exceptions. We have seen a decent amount of conscript uh, deployed in Ukraine, but generally this is the rule, right? There's some exceptions, but generally speaking, that's how they operate. Manning units at 70% is a major issue. Of course, um, in peacetime, it may be a big deal, but in all reality, Russia is obviously not in peacetime. They're very much engaged in this war with uh, the vast majority of their combat units. Units cannot afford to have jobs filled like, uh, sorry, units cannot afford to not have jobs filled like radio operators, vehicle crewmen, mechanics, right? They need those personnel um, at all times. Support personnel are very crucial to the mission, right? So that means when cuts need to be made, like in peacetime, the cuts in personnel usually fall to the infantry. Um, this is at least partially explaining why there's been a big shortfall in uh, the um, line infantry and Russian forces. We haven't seen as many as you normally would in a full-blown war, right? Um, along these same lines, this is probably why armored vehicles are rarely seen with infantry support, which has been a huge issue in this conflict since the invasion began. Units need to fill their spots for vehicle crewmen, like I said earlier, so infantry attachments are getting left out due to the peacetime strength guidelines. So just um, let me try and put that in layman's terms. Say you have an armored vehicle, right, that can carry 12 people, including three vehicle crewmen, right? You have the driver, you have the vehicle commander, and you have a gunner. For the vehicle's weapons okay well that's three people right there that you absolutely need now that means you have room for nine dismounted infantrymen right with the 70 percent manning levels you probably have six if you're lucky if you're lucky because again that 70 percent encompasses the entire unit which has a lot more slots that need to be filled besides the vehicle crewmen, which absolutely do need to be filled themselves. So you're seeing a, a severe lack in infantry, which definitely played a role in Russia's failure to achieve their objectives in the first phase of the war and, and probably still their failure to 
uh, quickly achieve their objectives at this moment. The United States has sent tens of billions of dollars worth of military equipment and aid to Ukraine since the invasion began on February 24th. This includes Stinger, manned portable air defense systems, um, switchblade, loitering munitions, aka suicide drones, javelin anti-tank guided missiles, other types of anti-armor systems, and millions of rounds of various types of ammunition, of course. As well, the United States just announced that it will provide Ukraine with M270A1 and M142 HIMARS multiple launch rocket systems. Along with these systems, Ukraine will also get GPS-guided rockets that the systems can utilize. However, the U.S. has said that they will not provide Ukraine with munitions that have such a range that they could be used to strike inside Russian territory. Ukraine has also stated that they wouldn't even do so given the capable munitions, but something worth noting. The M270A1 and the M142 are both decades ahead of their Soviet-made counterparts and used by Russia right now. That includes the BM-27 and the BM-30 multiple launch rocket systems. Their ability to use guided rockets gives them an edge over those Russian systems, of course. They are also much quicker to reload and have uh, much more modern targeting systems. The range on the guided rockets can be the real game changer for Ukraine, especially in the Donbass region where range artillery is desperately needed. Ukraine does use the BM-27 and BM-30 as well as Russia, but Russian strikes on rocket factories early on in the invasion left their stockpiles very depleted, so their systems um, aren't much used to them, right, because they don't have a ton of ammunition. If utilized correctly and quickly enough, the systems that the U.S. is providing can be game changers in the Donbass and in southern Ukraine. On April 11th, Ukrainian Marine and British National Aid in Oslin surrendered to Russian forces in Mariupol. You guys probably know him well as Cossack Gandhi online. After his capture, he was transferred into the custody of the Donetsk People's Republic, DPR. The DPR's prosecutor's office recently announced that they would charge Aslin, along with another British national, of being a foreign mercenary. If found guilty, he can face the death penalty, so we'll definitely keep an eye on that, of course. On April 13th, the Slava-class guided missile cruiser, the Moskva of the Russian Navy, was struck by Neptune-class anti-ship missiles in the Black Sea off the coast of Ukraine. The ship was heavily damaged before sinking the next day. Slava-class vessels do have triple-tiered air defense systems, which should have given Moskva the opportunity to defend itself, assuming systems were operating properly. Ukrainian sources say that the Barakhtar TB2 drones were distracting Moskva while the Neptunes were launched. The Moskva was the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, according to Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby. The ship was providing air cover for Russian forces in the area of the Black Sea. The ship, along with patrol ship Vasily Baikov, were present for the attack on Snake Island during the beginning of the invasion. Moskva was notably told to, language warning, quote, go fuck yourself by a Ukrainian border guard on the island, which most of you have probably famously heard that quote. The true number of casualties is still not known from the sinking of the Moskva, but at least 37 Russian sailors are confirmed dead, with many more missing. 
On April 25th, Willie Joseph Cancel, an American actively fighting in Ukraine, was killed in action, according to his family. The 22-year-old Marine Corps veteran from Tennessee was working for a private military contractor that sent him to Ukraine, according to his mother, Rebecca Cabrera. However, two members of the Ukrainian military familiar with Cancel said that he was a member of the Ukrainian International Legion as a volunteer, not mercenary. One of the members, Cameron Van Camp, another American, said Cancel was assigned to a team with at least four other Americans. Van Camp said their unit fought in Irpin in Kiev's outskirts and in Kherson in Mykolaiv in the south. Van Camp himself is a U.S. Army veteran with two deployments to Afghanistan. The members of Cancel's unit haven't given details about his death even still, and as far as we're aware, his body has still not yet been found. He is at least the third American to be killed in Ukraine, but the first to be killed as an active combatant. Willie Joseph Cancel is survived by his wife and their eight-month-old baby. On April 28th, Radio Svoboda journalist Viri Hrich was killed when a supposed Russian missile struck her apartment complex on Thursday in Kiev. RFE President Jamie Fly said in a statement, quote, We have lost a dear colleague who will be remembered for her professionalism and dedication to our mission, end quote. Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko said that at least one person had been killed and 10 others were injured in the apartment complex. No other details were given. Hirsch was born in 1967 and began working for Radio Free Europe in 2018. She is survived by her son and her parents. On May 28th, Lithuania crowdfunded 5 million euros, which is the equivalent to 5.4 million U.S. dollars, to purchase a TB2 drone to donate to Ukraine. In response, Baraktar, who is the maker of the TB2 drone, offered to gift a drone to Luania for free on the condition that the money raised for the drone goes towards humanitarian aid for Ukrainians. On May 30th, Ukrainian forces recaptured the area of Mykolaivka in northern Kherson. On May 31st, a Ukrainian counterattack in Kherson Oblast pushed into Davidiv Brid in an apparent attempt to cut off Russian forces near Kiev Yuri from their supply lines. Heavy fighting is still ongoing in the area as Ukrainian units try to secure the area around the village. On June 2nd, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that 50 embassies had resumed operations in Kiev. This includes the embassies of the United States and the United Kingdom. Since Russia has shifted their objectives from Kiev to taking all of the Donbass region, the biggest focus in the region right now is Sverodonetsk in Luhansk Oblast. The city, along with the nearby city, Nishansk, are some of the last cities in Luhansk not to be under Russian control. Previous reports that Sverodonetsk had been captured entirely by Russian forces are false. Intense fighting continues in the city as Ukrainian units are making the Russians take the city block by block. And even today, we are getting reports from the Ukrainian government that Ukrainian counterattack has retaken 20% of the city, which, if those reports are accurate, means that Ukraine holds roughly 50% of the city. Simultaneously, Russian forces are still trying to find a way to cross the Sverdsky-Donetsk River in order to encircle the two cities. 
Crossing the river has been a big issue for Russian forces in recent weeks. Earlier last month, Russian forces tried a river crossing using a pontoon bridge, which ended in disaster, and Ukrainian troops were able to repel the river crossing. The Ukrainian government claims that 1,000 to 1,500 Russian troops were killed or two battalion tactical groups destroyed in this river crossing operation. However, the Institute for the Study of War estimates that 400 to 485 Russian troops were killed. It is important to keep in mind that Russian battalion tactical groups, and this plays into what I was saying earlier about manning levels being 70% as opposed to 100 Russian battalion tactical groups are heavily undermanned and in all reality are more comparable in size to a reinforced American company than a battalion. Of course, like I just said, this plays into the 70% manning levels, but it also plays into the massive amounts of casualties the Russian military has taken since the beginning of the invasion, particularly in the first phase. These units are probably not receiving many replacements, really, if any, and their troop levels are drastically low. So that is an issue they will have to deal with in the future. In addition to crossing the river, Russian units will likely attempt to drive north from Popasna in order to encircle the two cities without having to cross the river. And just from updates today, it seems like they are definitely appearing to do so. Um, I assume that they will probably focus more on this course of action as opposed to taking all of Syrodonetsk, um, especially seeing now that Ukrainian counterattacks in the city are potentially making some pretty big progress. So encircling the two cities uh, by driving up from Popasnaz will probably be the likely course of action. And with that being said, we will take a quick break and we'll be right back. You guys gave me a couple questions that you wanted answered. Uh, first, is there any fighting ongoing in Mariupol? Didn't some of the Azov regiments stay? Uh, so no, Mariupol is completely under Russian control right now. The last Ukrainians that were held up in the Azovstal metal plant in Mariupol surrendered and they were taken prisoner along with the remaining Azov soldiers that were in the city. The regiment does have some detachments still active in other areas of the country, though. I know there's a decent Azov regiment presence in Zaporizhia, and I know they also just established a detachment in Kharkiv. But as to the first part of your question, no, uh, Mariupol's completely... Um, under Russian control, uncontested. And uh, second question, how many days do you give the Ukrainian army in the Donbass? Well, first, I'm, I'm not sure it's a matter of days. It's uh, probably a matter of weeks, if anything. Um, it doesn't look great for the Ukrainian army in uh, the Donbass, but um, seeing as they were able to retake 30% of the Sverdonetsk uh, region is um, definitely helping their case. They're not out of the woods yet by any means. They do have a pretty big salient in that area. Um, and if they do get encircled, they're going to take a good amount of um, casualties and POWs for 
an area that isn't really super crucial to the big picture. Um, if things keep going the way they are, it's it's probably a matter of weeks for the Ukrainian army. If uh, the situation changes for whatever reason, whether it's them gaining momentum or them getting uh, fresh reinforcements or equipment, particularly from the West, like those uh, rockets we were talking about earlier, then the situation could change. But right now, uh, it's not looking great. Not a matter of days, though, probably weeks, if anything. Russia has had at least 10 generals confirmed or reported to have been killed in combat. This includes one retired major general that was fighting in Ukraine as a mercenary. That is Major General Kanamat Bochev. He was shot down on May 22nd in an Su-25 attack plane over Popozna in Luhansk Oblast. He was shot down using an American-made FIM-92 Stinger anti-aircraft missile launcher. He was discharged from the Russian Air Force in 2013 after 32 years of service for crashing an Su-27 fighter jet. The Ukrainian government believes that Bodyshev was deployed to Ukraine as an employee of the Russian private military contractor Wagner Group. His death has been confirmed by the Russian government. Also included are Deputy Commander for the 8th Guards Combined Arms Army Major General Vladimir Forlov. He was killed Prior to April 16th, the details of his death weren't released, but his death was confirmed by his funeral in St. Petersburg. And lastly, we have Major General Andrei Simonov. He was reportedly killed on May, or I'm sorry, April 29th near the Russian-controlled city of Izium in Kharkiv Oblast by a Ukrainian artillery strike. Simonov was the chief of electrical warfare troops for the 2nd Guards Combined Arms Army. And the other generals that are reported or confirmed to have been killed were detailed in previous episodes, so I'm not going to go all uh, over all of those. As for casualties, the UN has acknowledged at least 4,100 civilian deaths in Ukraine since the beginning of the invasion. However, the Ukrainian government has confirmed 4,600 civilian deaths, uh, but they do believe anywhere from 11,300 to 27,300 have been killed. As for Russia, on April 21st, Russian media outlet Ryadvoka claimed in a now-deleted post on VK, that's like the Russian equivalent of Facebook, that the Kremlin acknowledged 13,414 servicemen killed in action and another 7,000 missing. Of course, that post is deleted, as I said, and a month and a half old, right? So even if that is true, those numbers are very outdated. The Russian government has acknowledged at least 3,863 deaths among Russian and separatist servicemen. Those numbers are over a month old. Ukraine states that Russia has suffered 30,000 losses, both killed and wounded, and the U.S. government estimates Russia has lost over 15,000 troops killed in action. As for Ukraine, the Ukrainian government has acknowledged at least 3,000 personnel killed in action, but that estimate is almost a month old. Although President Zelensky has said that Ukraine is losing over 100 servicemen each day in this fighting uh, in the Donbass that's going on, so those are not small numbers at all. The Russian government claims that over 14,000 Ukrainian personnel have been killed in action, and the U.S. government estimates 
that that number is anywhere from 5,500 to 11,000 Ukrainian personnel. But that estimate is almost a month old as well. For visually confirmed equipment losses, that is equipment that has been destroyed, abandoned, or captured. Uh, Russia has lost at least 4,214 pieces of equipment. That is tanks, armored vehicles, aircraft, helicopters, uh, naval ships, uh, fuel trucks, trains, uh, anything, surface-to-air missiles, all, all that kind of stuff. So Russia has lost 751 tanks. Russia has lost enough to fill eight entire Russian tank regiments with some left to spare. That is a massive amount of tanks for armored fighting vehicles, infantry fighting vehicles, and armored personnel carriers. That number is 1,350 for fixed wing aircraft or airplanes. That number is 30, 28 of which were combat aircraft. Helicopters, they have lost 43 unmanned aerial vehicles. They have lost 80 naval ships. They have lost nine seven of which were destroyed and logistics trains they have lost two fuel trains for ukraine they have lost at least 1122 pieces of equipment for tanks they have lost 187 armored fighting vehicles infantry fighting vehicles and armored personnel carriers they have lost 279 fixed wing aircraft they have lost 25 of which 22 were combat aircraft they have lost 11 helicopters, 19 unmanned aerial vehicles, and 18 naval ships. Obviously, these losses are pretty big for both sides, and these are only losses that we can visually confirm. So the real numbers are likely much, much larger for both sides, especially for Ukraine, since Ukraine is really winning this uh, information war, and the majority of sources we're seeing come from this war are Ukrainian or pro-Ukrainian they're obviously going to showcase uh, Russian equipment losses more than their own. So just keep that in mind, right? But again, obviously big numbers, and that's all we can visually uh, confirm. So again, numbers are a lot larger. But with that being said, that's all I got for you guys right now. And I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You could find us on your favorite podcast apps. That is Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. You could also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Analyze Educate. And that is all I have for you guys this week. We will see you around.